Welcome once again, everyone, to Rumor Requirement. This is episode 16. I am one of your co-hosts, Kamalash Rao. And uh, with me is... Oh, Miracle Jones. Yeah, man. So we like to start <laughs> our podcast with talking about how we've been. And so how have you been, man? It's been a little while since we've had a podcast. It's actually been a little while since I've seen you. Yeah, I don't know. It's been, it's been a frustrating couple of weeks. Uh, a lot going on. Right. It's stressful as hell. But... Yeah. Both personal and I think maybe professional with you. Yeah, too, yeah, so yeah. I yeah. so... don't have to reveal all the details. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Yeah, just trying to like get life in order in like fundamental ways like work and home and stuff like that so yeah are you overwhelmed or you think you're getting through it do you feel like you're successful or where are you right now i just feel like any moment i could just be like over like it could something could happen like it's that's too much yeah and my like elaborate house of cards will come crashing <laughs> down and i'll just be like fucked won't be able to handle anything it's you know? <laughs> be like a turtle on its back <laughs> and the birds will come and pluck out my insides is, is there a, is this like a is this like a lifelong fear of yours like the turtle on the back <laughs> no not really i mean i i, I i'm kind of a laid-back person that yeah. tries to like not take on too much responsibility yeah. in life like evading responsibility is definitely like a life uh, <laughs> pattern sure but it just like at a certain you just get older and you can't run from it anymore like people just like tell you to do things and you realize you you feel some sense of like i don't know obligation like for, for instance i think you're a pretty good example of somewhere i'd like to be you know like you're you're you have like a stable kind yeah of like life you've got like you're kind of providing for yourself and meeting all those needs yeah so i i think the problem well so i mean i uh, that's true and i think uh, like um uh but i think there was something like there is something very calculated about what i did and there's there's some really clear sacrifices i made along the way um so i think um it was very clear like the day i stepped foot in college like i was not there to fuck around Right. Right. Like I had to like, and that was, that was a real tension for me in college is like, no matter what, at the end of those four years, I had to have a job and I had to like graduate. So there wasn't like a, like whatever I could fit in Mm -hmm. that was interesting to me was on the side of me trying to figure out I need to get a job. And so like fundamentally, like having financial stability was, was maybe my first goal in college when I got out. And that's a very like it's a very kind of immigrant mentality. It's something I inherited both from my parents, but also in the situation when I went to college, my parents were going through an ugly divorce. My mom was actually, I think, for a while crashing on couches. Shit, and, yeah. and my dad was like really nervous about how he's going to spend, how he's going to pay for college and all of that because I went to expensive college. Um, so like all of that kind of came through. And, uh, and so from the get-go, from, you know, when I was 22, I was... I uh, really, I had a job. I've always worked. Um, I'm the guy who like provides the couch <laughs> for people. Um, but it is uh, something that, uh, you know, and I, I, because of that, I didn't pursue things that I really maybe loved, maybe like, like history or philosophy or things like that. And so um, there are things that I, I left along the way, but you know, being practical, I think was something that it works well with my personality or what my personality became. And um, I think it's also uh uh, fundamentally, I had nothing distracting me, like any talent or <laughs> skill. So, like, I could just, I could just buckle down and be like, you know, I don't really have like, you know, like an art I need to pursue because I'm just terrible at all of those things. So, I appreciate like I'm a very 
sort of very practical person and always wants to know, you know, where my next paycheck is coming from. But I think that's also a real sacrifice. So, um, are you thinking about taking on more or taking on less? Or like, what uh, for, uh, in terms of, uh, so I guess there are a couple of things, right? So yeah. like, I mean, Cause you tell me what you want to do is like be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. What I really want to do is start my own indie publishing. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't okay. You can't handle it. Uh, I'm sort of settled. I have a wife. Uh, we have this apartment. It's not, it's a lab. It's a lifestyle that is both modest and affordable from where I come from. Um, I think in terms of, uh, I'm curious about things and I, I wish, like, I, I wish I was getting more from my job in that way. Um, uh, and I think it's also, but it, the job also affords me to like explore other things I'm interested in. Like I can record podcasts and, um, maybe take, uh, do interesting things. And I'm lucky I'm with someone who's also interested in exploring things in the city. So, um, I, always want to be stable and then use that as a base from which to like explore or define my interests and so um uh that's how always how i've thought about it um as uh if i were to become an artist it'd always be like or uh, art is sort of or my interests are always the side project and like the, the fundamental thing that i do in in life is is my job and that's supposed to be important and it's supposed to be you know really uh the crucial thing that i focus on um and that's 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 a way I think about it, uh, life. I don't think it's perfect, and that's not how everyone approaches it, but it's, just to be honest, that's how I approach my world. Yeah, no, it's wise. Being an artist is kind of like being, it's like having a mental illness. <laughs> so the older you get, you have to just like manage it better, or it like, consumes you, right? <laughs> so I'm just trying to like find a way to fit that in my life in a way that doesn't, it doesn't like you still you. have some, yeah quality of life yeah i um i i, I dated this woman in, uh, when i was younger and um at some point she was getting older she was a dancer and so she was actually she she had she was a programmer she that was her day job huh. and, that, and then she was a dancer she was a modern dancer and she's getting older at okay. that time i mean old means 29 or something yeah, like yeah graying out I yeah exactly <laughs> i remember and she was talking uh, uh, with my dad about this and he was like oh so a part of you is dying right like because like, she couldn't die because she couldn't dance anymore and like to me I was like oh well that's a really sensitive thing for my father to say he appreciates the sacrifice and yeah, and yeah. like she went into a tizzy like, yeah, yeah, of course. I, part of you is dying but I, I still don't understand why that's true I come from like really practical immigrants so yeah. I'm like oh, okay now you can give this up this is a stupid idea and it's like Oh, part of you is dying. He understood that this was really important. Like, yeah. But she was like, she couldn't handle it. She was really upset about that comment. But I guess maybe at some point you can explain to me why that's a terrible thing to say. I still don't understand that. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a wrong sentiment. It's just that I don't think people like to think of their parts of themselves that they identify with so strongly as being able to die. <laughs> right. You want the part of you that's your artistic side to be your eternal side as opposed right. and you're like meat side your practical side is the part that fuels that and then that dies off and your your dance lives forever you yeah know? your yeah. poem is eternal your yeah painting uh, is the, so in some ways like that you wouldn't even bother focusing on that if you didn't believe it couldn't die i'm not right. saying that's true i'm just right. saying that's how it's part of what fuels that like side of artistic endeavor that's interesting all right okay that's fair yeah too bad too bad you weren't around that. <laughs> time. oh well yeah, no. oh well um well is there anything you think you can work on or or is there something that you can sort of move towards i mean 
are you overwhelmed with like step one or do you feel like it's just if i had to distill it down it would be i'm very disciplined when it comes to writing and my yeah. practice of art and stuff like that it's taking that discipline that i've acquired through years of like struggle and applying it to the rest of my life right you know, which i've certainly never done and like yeah. don't believe in doing <laughs> it's, it's like, i think like if i don't then i'm gonna be slowly in worse and worse shit you know like just right like, yeah it it's interesting because I, I i would flip it like i think um uh when i uh, i was doing like improv right and like it just got better right like it, it required more like discipline and you had to focus on it and it you know it sort of becomes a little bit more like something you work at right again any art right um but whatever for it was improv and so my I kind of reacted towards that as like, hey, you know what? I am disciplined and organized and buttoned down in every other part of my life. I come to this as a way to get away from that. Right, so right. I don't want to structure yeah, this in yeah, any yeah, way. Yeah, like if sense. this gets past like me hanging out with people I think are funny, like right. this is less interesting to me. So right. um, I think if you're forced, if you're forced to have a lot of organization, you also want a, a, a part of your life that isn't that. That's a lot more fun. So I think it's hard to be organized about everything all the time. Uh, so you're saying my project's doomed to failure? <laughs> <laughs> I just think I don't think it's easy, but I think it's also it's helpful to talk about it. Yeah, no, yeah. you're right. Yeah. And you know, talking is the first step to doing nothing. <laughs> talking is the first step to doing nothing. <laughs> That's our tagline. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's our. Um, yeah. So anything else uh, in terms of? No, I mean, how's your how are you, how's your feelings? How's your heart? Uh, good. I mean, my wife yeah. is back home. She yeah, got yeah. back on, on uh, uh, Tuesday. Uh, we're still trying to sync our sleep schedules, but um, for the most part, we're both pretty happy to see each other. It's been a, it's we were about a month away. Uh, no, no, uh, we spent about three weeks apart, so uh, we get along, um, and so it's nice to have someone back <laughs> yeah, in my life. No, yeah, sure. uh, my my, I was talking to my sister, and my sister's been married uh, now about ten years, and she's like, and I was telling her, oh, you know, Angel's when she's got. Man, that's got to be so good for your relationship because, like, it is. It's it's enough. Like, we're independent enough that, like, okay, having a little break um, in terms of just not having that to live and and spend every moment with someone is is it's a it's a light nice break, but also just like okay, well now I'm I'm super excited. Let's do all these things together. So, yeah. it's a gum that's got its flavor back a bit. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but other than that, I think uh, uh, I think the health is good. I mean, it's just been a weird summer. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, putting on some weight, which is bad, but uh, it does not. I mean, I can. It, it is not visible to the naked eye. So, so this is the problem. I'll, um, uh, so, uh, uh, I am Indian. I never hid that fact. But so, Indian men. Um, this is true. Like Indian men, like they store their fat around their stomach, uh, so it's called visceral fat. Huh? Dubious. It's, it's absolutely true. Uh, so, like, you'll see, you'll see Indian men. As my father's the same. Like, sure. you'll, they'll be really, really skinny, except they'll have like a, you know, like what my friend used to call brown man's burden. It was just like this gut, right? And that's actually the worst place for you to store fat. It's actually it has the worst outcomes in terms of your health. So, like, um, it's really uh, it's indicative of a number uh, of issues, long term health issues. Um, and it can lead to a number of long-term health issues. So, like, I'll, I will look skinny in a lot of ways, but as I start packing around pounds around my belly, which I have, um, it's uh, it's probably not the best of things. What is it? Is it, like, bad cardiovascularly, or why is it? I think it's bad for um, uh, things like uh, implications for diabetes, or um, it's uh, cardiovascular health is probably one of the issues, but I think also, um, I think other longer-term issues as well, so...
this long medical explanation is my way of being like, okay, I put on three pounds. Right, I need three to, pounds is nothing. You're I need like, to, I need, three pounds? Right, yeah, I, need, I need to work that off. <laughs> okay. Uh, how, how often are you at the gym these days? Uh, I am at the gym. I will probably work out like four or five times a week. That's way more than human beings in America do. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. It's just never enough. It's just never enough. And, and Angela works out more than that, right? Yeah, Angela, I mean, uh, she lives a life of a white woman. Like, she, uh, like a rich white lady. She'll go in and she'll be like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go to yoga. And maybe I'll get in a second second Again, class of yoga. Yeah, she frequently does, like, two workouts a day. Yeah, right, right. right. Like she does a lot of day. yoga. But yeah. even then, I think both of us struggle with trying to, like, keep weight off. Like, I mean, you're just older. and it's like just a lie. You're both, like, thin and healthy. No, no, but, but we gained weight. It's all, like, from the base, right? Like, yeah. So you, so what you're saying, you started this, like, barely there? <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. There, there, there and was now you're, like, full, like, <laughs> happy people. <laughs> like, your average weight. And it's, like, driving you crazy. Um... <laughs> Well, you have, I don't... Like, a vision of yourself as, like, spectral? <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I used to have, like, you know, I used to have, like, these really defined, like, sleek cheekbones, and I was like... You still do? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think it's... It's not great. Like, I think, yeah. I think... I think you're right, but the idea is that now that I've crossed 40, and so is Angela, like... You've we're... developed body dysmorphia disorder. <laughs> right, 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 right. How do you exercise more than four or five times a week, though? What are you going to do? So I know you're not good at math, but that's called six or seven? Uh, Every day? No one would tell. That's not a good idea, right? Like, that's bad for you. Well, it depends on what you do. Like, I I, I vary it up. So, like, I'll do weights and I'll do whatever I'll run or try to uh, sort of start swimming. And so, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You you look very good in, like, training. Thank you. I appreciate that. But, like, yeah. On the inside, though. On the inside, you're like, a forty-year-old, forty-two-year-old. <laughs> you've gained three pounds, and, <laughs> and you're like. Yeah. All right, so do you want to talk about politics now? Yeah, for sure. Let's uh, let's get into it. Yeah, so it's been a little while um, since we talked, uh, and so there are a number of things that happened. Yeah, just it's been crazy. Yeah, so I mean, uh, in terms of the big headline news, I, obviously, um, the ongoing fiasco that is. Uh, Putin Gate, Russia Gate, uh, Mayor. I, th- I think "gate" is a bad word for it. Like, sure. if I had to call it something, I'd call it piss tape. Piss tape. Yeah, you want to give the appellation tape to things, right? Like, right. After and going forward, like this is so big that I think it deserves its own like word, right? All right. Like, okay. Right. Right. So instead of like piss gate, you know, piss tape. You know? Right. 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 The okay. old Trump piss tape scandal. <laughs> All right. Let's see if that that picks up. But uh, just to r- remind everyone, obviously, I think most people are aware of this. Um, about a week. Uh, a little bit more than a week and a half ago, um, there were a series of testimonies from people like Sally Yates about um, how Trump handled uh, accusations or um, issues with, uh, I guess, collusion on part of with his staff or his uh, a lot of his, the people who worked for him during the electoral campaign. So we're talking about that, um, and that was gaining a lot of ground until. Trump fired James Comey, who was the FBI director and who was really overseeing um, some of the investigations. Um, And so that was sort of big news, and I don't know if we've ever quite died down from it. Um, Then the day after that, he met with the Russians and supposedly leaked intel. He leaked Uh, intel immediately after that. Um, Now we have a special prosecutor in the form of of a former FBI chief. Um, and at the same time, we're still looking for an FBI leader. And additionally, it's come out that there's been a series of memos that Comey has delivered to other in the yeah. intelligence officials throughout the 
past few months about Trump meeting with him and trying to get him to quash the investigation. Right, exactly. Loyalty, pledge loyalty or whatever. And so I think it's... And the past few days, a couple other heads of agencies have claimed the same thing, that Trump has gotten in touch with them. And yeah, tried to the quash this, yeah. yeah. Uh, quite try to quash this investigation into possible collusion between his campaign staff or even himself and the Russians. So I guess what I want to ask you is, what do you make of all of this? Like we've had, uh, it's good that we don't, have, don't do like a daily podcast where we have to react to news. Like yeah. we have a little time to like take it all in. What is your general take? Um, we've been talking actually since our first podcast about the Russian involvement of Trump. Uh, has your opinion changed? Uh, what are your... In general, what's your take on it, um, and where do you think we go from here? Uh, <clears throat> without some sort of damning audio or video evidence that changes people's opinion of Trump, yeah, and, you know, in, a, in like a severe way, right? Like yeah. some, you have to have like that visual thing, right? Yeah, like, I, I don't think it's going to do much uh, damage in the short term. Uh, the special prosecutor could bring criminal charges against people, which would be big. Yeah. That would be huge. Uh, but that will take a while. Right. right. That might take years. Right. right? Uh, to wrap all up all the loose ends and start sure. to... And so the short term, that's going to be good for him because it gets the this off the... It puts it all in one box and puts a lid on the box, right? Now everyone can, can say, I can't answer that question because of the ongoing investigation. Uh, also, it's going to make it look like, because no one's, there's no more news coming out about it, theoretically. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and because of the investigator being on it or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it'll look like he's just walked away from it, like he survived it and somehow, perceptually, okay. right? So, I guess, I, I think I take the opposite tack, right? Like, yeah. I, I, So, one, I think that since the firing of Comey, we've seen an erosion of his approval polls. And I think there's some like subtle uh, changes underneath um, that we don't really talk about, but it's important. I think in general, the appearance of having a scandal is bad for any president. And so, like, this is a person who started out with not a lot of political capital, and I think that's slowly eroding. Now, the problem is that I think we've jumped to the conclusion that okay, slowly eroding means impeachment, which right? I, yeah, yeah I, which I disagree with, but I think it, it continues to eat away at what little political capital. I'd say his political capital is gone. I'd say it's completely... Yeah, I'd agree with that. I would say politically, he's bankrupt, right? Like, yeah. he's completely toast. Like, there's nothing he can do now, right? Like, almost absolutely nothing. I'd yeah. say, like, his entire administration is in, like, receivership to the Republican Party, to the GOP, right? right you wrote this, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. can you explain what you mean by that? Well, so he's lived his entire life, like, you know, bankrupt on some level <laughs> or another, right? And what happens is the banks, you know, he's got, like toxic assets that the banks still need to make money off of right sure so they have to keep his name on it and yes and the, the casino has to be kept in business right so right. they can pay off the debts right right i think in a lot of ways they're they're the republican party is forced to in some ways bail out yeah so and they they themselves the republican party has tied themselves so closely to the fate of trump that it's going to be really really hard for that significant part of the body politic to walk away from Trump entirely. Yeah, so, you know, they, they and they, so they need to squeeze the last possible juice out of whatever the name Trump means. You know, their fortunes are so inextricably linked that... Yeah, and that's, again, a really sizable part of the body politic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think are the... What do you think will... What is there something that will happen that will force the Republicans to walk away from Trump? Mm. 
tapes of him saying the N word, you know. Like, I don't think that was sex it. tape, you know. Like, I think I think there would have to be strong proof of collusion with the Russians. Like I don't I don't calling people epithets are all going to be like, oh, this is terrible. We're going to erode the like three cents he still has in the bank. We're going to take away two more of those cents. But he has no political capital, so it doesn't hurt him. I think once you talk about explicit impeachment, yeah. or sorry, explicit collusion, yeah. then you talk about impeachment. Right. Short of that, I think it's going to be really hard. And to that end, I think the I think I think the Russian angle is not the story, and I think the same this the story right. is still not. It's, it's been it got kind of brought up a little bit in the last right. cycle, but I, I think the bigger story is Flynn in Turkey and the way in which uh, Turkey uh, kept you know this military plan against ISIS like. Uh, from going into effect for the past five months. Right. We talked about this, I think it was on yeah. episode 13 or 14, and I think it finally broke in, I think, mainstream press. But yeah. do you want to re- just revisit that story? Sure. I, uh, the, what happened was that the uh, Obama administration for the past, you know, four years has been trying to figure out what to do in Syria, right? Or, you know, uh, and it's, it's for the past 15 years, maybe 20 years, it's been American policy to support the Kurds, right? They are like yeah. uh, this, you know, sect of like super warriors without a country who are willing to like be CIA assets. And they are possible. right. And I mean, this actually goes back to the first Gulf War yeah. back in the 1990s because they effectively established a quasi homeland for in northern Iraq that was uh, de facto Kurdistan. Right. Sure. Yeah. It wasn't officially, but yeah. yeah. And this is the land ISIS has taken. Right. right. So uh, this land that stretches from nor- between northern Iraq and, and northern Syria. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway so the plan to take Raqqa requires somebody to go in there and take it right uh, we've, we've we're, we're Mosul's you know about to fall may mm-hmm. fall eventually thanks to extremely horrifying bombing campaign that no one seems to care about right we're, yeah. we've decided that civilians don't matter anymore so we're just bombing the shit out of these cities right it's yeah. fine uh, it was a choice we've decided to make by going with Trump like it would have been different if yeah. Clinton we would have had a more human rights focused military approach yeah to sure. some degree yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll agree with that yeah. no, the, sure. you would, it would require I don't know European and American press to like turn it into a human rights issue yeah. they just don't have the will or time it seems to care too much about the way we're prosecuting this war uh, I also think that they don't have enough boots on the ground, and they're not covering it. Like no one, there are right. there are very few uh, major international press agencies in Mosul right yeah. now. Yeah, it makes it makes me ashamed, but I I understand yeah. why yeah. people are not mad about it if they don't know about it. Right? right, like how would you know? Anyway, so that's 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 the Iraqi side of the of uh, the land ISIS has taken. Right in Syria, the Raqqa is the main ISIS stronghold. Right, like, yeah, that would be the that's their final. You know. Uh, resting spot and where where all the propaganda and leaders are yeah. coming from, right? So it's being protected from being taken essentially by the Russians, right? Yeah. Because there's no way anybody can go in there because the Russians have Syria on lockdown, right? Right. Along with uh, the you know Syrian army, uh, who have no interest in fighting ISIS because why spend the resources fighting ISIS when you can spend those resources fighting, fighting internal rebels, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's in America's interest to take Raqqa, but no one else in the region uh, r- really has any will to do so. Right? Yeah. So except for 
the three options that we have as far as like taking Rocco with the armed forces are, yeah. and we don't want to put boots on the ground. That's right. Just well, that's one boots on the ground. We'd have to commit about two hundred thousand troops. Yeah. Uh, and that's it, just never gonna happen. Never gonna happen, right? So then there's the the Turkish ghost army, right? Like for Erdogan has been saying like we'll do it. Turkey will take care of this. Not gonna for, happen. Right. So that that has been kind of proven with Erdogan's sort of response to events of his coup and yeah. uh, the. Uh, their new alliance with Russia, which mm-hmm. is recent after the plane got shot down and yeah. Edwin went over there and he suddenly had a lot more electoral success as a result of that. Not, yeah. Yeah. Russia and Turkey didn't used to be allied in the same way that they are now. Yes, now absolutely. Uh, they have a brand new relationship and it seems to be strong. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Erdogan's ghost army will not be taking the city of Raqqa. No. Right? So the left. So who's left? So the only people that are left are the Kurds, right? right. Uh, sending in who are already embedded with. You know, the yeah. Marines are embedded right. with the Kurds and have been for a long time, fighting yeah. alongside them. Uh, so giving them the resources they need in the region to fight this war for us uh, was the last. It's not a great plan, honestly. It's kind of a. They're not. You know. Uh, they're a stateless army with American backing in, right. a, in an extremely hostile region, right? Right, absolutely. But the idea was that we would back, or we would arm... Uh, it's better than nothing. That's Yeah, we'd arm or support the Kurds. Yeah. And um, for those of us who don't know, uh, Turkey absolutely hates the Kurds. Right. So, and yeah. recently, in the past maybe five years, they've really doubled down on absolutely thinking that Kurds are the enemy of the state. One of the problems was... Um, and one of the shifts is that uh, Erdogan, who is the president of Turkey, uh, spent many years, actually, he's been in, a president for a really long time, he's spent many years trying to reach out. But um, there... There's been a series of terrorist attacks, which he's yeah. blamed on the Kurds. Right. And I think at some point, he, there's a shift. It's, it's closely linked to internal politics of Turkey, but effectively there was a shift where he decided that Kurds make better enemies than allies, and so he has really doubled down on prosecuting um, uh, Kurds uh, within Turkey, but also making sure that he uh, trying to uh, reach out to Kurds across the border that could actually help out in the uh, war in Syria is just a no go. Yeah. And so that's Turkey's position that they don't want to work with the Kurds and they don't want to in- do anything that arms them. So, how does this play back to U.S. politics? So, for the past uh, several years, Michael Flynn has been. Unregistered foreign agent for Turkey, right? Yeah. So he's been taking money from Turkey uh, while visiting Russia and sort of, you know, back and forth, being sort of Russia's preferred general, uh, being an RT a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that's been his job. That's how he's made his cash, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't well known, but that was what he was doing. He was, you know, work, working as a propaganda agent for Turkey, right? Yeah. Not, not a, it's not a conspiracy. That's just what his job was, right? Right. He hadn't registered in the United States, but it was a fact, right? Yeah. Uh, he took five hundred grand from Turkey for doing this, and then uh, he was under investigation about it, right? Because yeah. he was unregistered and he'd taken this money, right? Right. And so, at some point, the Obama administration is making this transition to hand things over to. Well, first of all, Obama fired Michael Flynn. Right. right? Yeah, and that's when he got his new job as an unregistered foreign agent. Sure. Um, but in the transition between Trump and Obama, uh, Obama's plans were, or there were some plans in the works to try to arm and cooperate with the Kurds, and the National Security Advisor at the time tra- tried to transition those plans to the up-and-coming National Security Advisor, who is 
who was Flynn, right. and those plans went nowhere. Right. So effectively, effectively Flynn shut down a real a possibility of making the region slightly better off um, because he was in hock to the to Turkey. Yeah, I, or maybe he just should have recused himself from making that decision. Had he being an unregistered Turkish foreign agent. Yeah, I mean certainly something we would want to know. If <laughs> were. Uh, anyway, so after that. Lots of leaks about Flynn and his status as uh, somebody who had met with Kislyak, uh, uh, talking about sanctions in Russia, and someone who had been taking money from Turkey, uh, and he was summarily fired for lying to Mike Pence, and replaced with... McMaster? Yeah, who's basically, you know, the Pentagon in human form, right? Yeah. He can't quit. He's serving the president. He's right. not military. People who are part of the military apparatus, who are certainly well-respected, who are now in charge of policy, and that effect, and and we talk about putting grown-ups in the room, but effectively what that means is that uh, there's a real military mindset that has captured a lot of the policy-making. Uh, it's, ki- it's a kind of grown-up. I mean, there's many different kinds of grown-up. Yeah. Trump is definitely not a kind of grown-up. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I think, and part of this, I think, was the exchange that I don't that Flynn was sacrificed and now you have uh, military uh, military thinking in the administration and I think part of that means that they are also completely embedded with this administration so again not li- unlike the Republican Party now you also have the military apparatus that feels like it needs to continue to try to make Trump succeed yeah but I think I think this is a way bigger scandal than is being reported even as it's reported like it, it seems to be taking a far backseat to the Russia situation when we don't know anything about the Russia situation. We know pretty much everything about this Turkish situation, right? And especially since they've decided to now arm the Kurds, right? What is their logic for doing so now? What was their logic for not doing so in the past? I think the truth is that we don't want to, we want to do as little as possible as we can in Syria. And um, we don't have a, no one has a plan really for the entire region other than to drop bombs um and uh there's no way that we can negotiate moving towards peace and uh, effectively you can try to destroy some of the uh, a lot of isis land there yeah. or the, the, the two cities they hold yeah, yeah absolutely um but uh whether or not that anything other than sort of uh perpetual insurgency um from from the hinterland um i think that's I think there's no one talking about a long-term strategy, right? And I think that's that's unfortunate. And it, it's the sad place where our policy is. But I would also want to point out, and this is brought up a lot when Trump was going to Saudi Arabia, I, d- I think there's a line of continuity in terms of foreign policy that the left is really blind to. I think Trump is continuing something that Obama largely started. And so that's that's something that I think foreign policy is hard neither side of the political debate really has a great view or vision for it and both parties are going to stumble when they try to put up easy and cheap um solutions to a very complicated problem definitely agree with that however the the difference the obama slash clinton difference was a a human rights uh, yeah i'll I'll say i'll say that i i actually have more faith in clinton as a foreign policy thinker than Obama. I think with Obama there was a there was talk about human rights. Um, I think more or less he also wanted it to go away. So uh, 
I am certainly I liked Obama, but I thought his foreign policy, especially in that region, was particularly weak. As a chain of events, it seems pretty unprecedented in American history to have an unregistered foreign agent doing yeah as is, a national security yeah absolutely so yeah making i making decisions that benefited other countries right I clearly and was neutral about whether it benefited us or not it's a scandal that flynn is who he was and how high he was in the in the administration and absolutely he should be prosecuted um and he should be buried effectively um I don't think that that scandal is going to reach into the echelons, upper echelons. Like, I don't think it'll touch Trump directly in the sense that I don't think Trump is, is going to be caught up directly in this scandal, either with Turkey or Russia. I think it, it indirectly, uh, well, as we talked about, I mean, it really affects his political capital. But before we leave this section, um, I I had this theory that I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, and sure. So, I was like, so uh, in general, there's just been a lot of bad press and a lot of bad news, but there are a number of um, still policy initiatives taking place underneath. They kind of get buried. And I had a thought that maybe this is actually what success looks like in the Trump administration. And uh, I'll explain that, is that a lot of their policies that they can get through, um, most, I think, most importantly, I think Jeff Sessions brought up some ideas about how uh, federal prosecutors, how lenient they can be in terms of uh, certain crimes. And Jeff Sessions being Jeff Sessions wants a much more stringent uh, line. You know, you don't, uh, you're not allowed to have this kind of discretion. Uh, prosecutors aren't allowed to have the kind of discretion that they had in the past. And that's Jeff Sessions, and he's totally 80s when it comes to crime. Um, but uh, so I think this goes uh, hand in hand with, I think, a way of thinking about policy that is we don't we want to talk tough about policy um, and we will expect people who oppose us to take the brunt of our failures so we can blame things like either the Congress or the left uh, when our policies don't get through or this pushback. And at the same time, we don't actually have to face the repercussions of terrible policy. Right. So, uh, for example, immigration, like immigration actually may be a success for Trump because he doesn't actually have to do anything. He just has to talk tough. Mm-hmm. And he can blame this person or that person or this side or that side for his failures for getting anything through. And at the same time, he doesn't really have to deal with the fact that his policies are going to be terrible. And if he had a much more engaged um, buildup for uh, deportations, not that there aren't deportations going on, going on, but uh, it wouldn't made real headlines because already you're starting to see a fray in terms of the of the political talking points because it does affect families it does affect a lot of people who are embedded in our fabric of society when yeah. you start to import, uh, take out people who aren't criminals which effectively ICE has done I think you can make that same argument for whatever Sessions wants for his drug policy he can talk tough or whatever he wants for uh, prosecutorial <laughs> issues and a number of really ridiculous policies that come out from the Trump Sessions Bannon wing yeah, of- just FYI if you know a weed smoking Trump supporter in a red state you have a solemn patriotic duty to turn them in <laughs> to fill the jails with like white weed smoking Trump supporters <laughs> otherwise those jail cells are going to be filled up with people that don't deserve to be there <laughs> drop a dime drop a dime do what's right do snitch. what's right yeah snitch. and snitch snitch them out right yeah um, so and move I- to New York <laughs> so I think um so I think this is this is success actually. This is a weird chaotic version of success. Talk tough, blame your failures to actually make put forth policy on your enemies 
And then at the same time, you don't have to deal with ramifications of uh, policies that aren't thought through, that have real repercussions that can really hurt our society. You don't, you're saved from the, your own bad thinking by these, your so-called enemies. It's really nihilistic. It's just like... Yeah, but I think that's yeah. not... I, I think it's I think nihilistic. I don't think you're wrong. I just think it's like it's very dark that we've come to a point where like the best thing you can do is just like... Fail and talk tough? Fail and talk tough and just do hurt people and do nothing. And, like, <laughs> you get credit for that. Like it's I, For certain people, you get credit. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think that's... I think they've settled into this new mode of success because they didn't make... Uh, <laughs> so they, they just changed the goalposts? Yeah, they, they changed the po- yeah. goalposts. And I think it's actually we're all better for it because they're yeah. fundamentally failing yeah, yeah, and yeah. they're okay with failing. Yeah, yeah. Like, so uh, I think maybe we should move on to yeah, the next yeah, no. part, which is actually related anyway. So this is what we call doubling down on defeat. This is where we talk about missteps and own goals created by the left. <laughs> How the right will stay in power for the next <laughs> Despite everything we talked about. Years, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I wanted to bring up, again, was uh, related to Russia. So I think it, it links back to our earlier section. But there is a lot about on the left about expecting things like impeachment. And we've talked about this before. It's like we uh, want impeachment or we think that, okay, well, there's a lot of scandal going on. Bring him down. I think you have to see where we are in terms of where we are in terms of dealing with this scandal is actually a, a huge success, right? So we've we've raised the bar. We've made sure that there is a lot of, of political capital being taken away from the Trump administration. Yeah, we bankrupted the Trump administration. Yeah, politically. Which is interesting. Like, yeah. I mean, now we have to deal with the fact that we have made McCain, Lindsey Graham, and Susan Collins like the most powerful people in the government, right? Right. Of a, but the government is significantly weakened, right? Yeah, like, yeah, if yeah. we didn't, I mean, we raised the cost, the political cost right. of law any real initiative and it is absolutely right to bring up the idea even if there's a remote chance that there was treason you don't get to be wishy-washy about this you don't get to just say okay well we'll do it we'll do a sort of a backdoor kind of investigation we should be very very aware of what's happening Um, any whiff of treason on this level is extremely important um, and we should be paying attention to it so there's nothing wrong with what we've done so far but i think the idea is that expecting a anything short of impeachment as being somehow selling out or seeing anything short of impeachment as somehow a failure of the process, I think is wrong. And I think that's a lot of the dialogue of what you're seeing in the left. Um, and I just want to keep everyone, uh, I just want to make sure that everyone is aware that in the end, we inherit the government at some point. There is a real chance that we, the, the wheel will turn. And then if we have significantly weakened both the presidency or the institutions, we will inherit a weakened uh, government because of that. So it's important to think about calling um, when you try to pull up certain clauses, whether they be the 25th Amendment. These are certainly weapons that you can use against the government, but they will be used against you at the same time. So the violating the basic norms of how we run the government. Especially if it's the rock. Yeah, exactly. Emoluments clause for the rock. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Like, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's just really important to think about we want to... We want to make this a very hard presidency for the Trump, for Trump because he's terrible. But at the same time, we have to. There are reasons that we have norms, and the norms are important um, as we do expect to at some point be a part or be in charge of the government again. This is one of those things where I actually am pretty happy about it. I like saying the executive just checked ideologically. Yeah, like I'm pretty okay with the Senate becoming more powerful in American life. That's absolutely true. But I think it's. Uh, yeah, in particular, I was thinking about they're talking about removing him under a, 
I think Amendment Twenty Five, where right, where it's where, the his cabinet, and that's just a fantasy. That's insane. Unless yeah. he just like, you know, starts masturbating at his like podium and just like singing, "I'm a little teapot." Like that's not happening. Right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, and I don't think we should go down that road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and even if he did do that, we should definitely keep him as president. Like, <laughs> be great for 2018, right? Just like show that clip every 20 minutes, and here's President Trump singing and masturbating again. Uh, <laughs> He yeah. is the leader of the Republican Party. <laughs> I would hey. really want Schumer to vote to keep him in. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, like he's yours now. Yeah, <laughs> forever. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So yeah, exactly. We could run anything. Yeah, again yeah, yeah. in 2018 or 2020. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I want to say. It's just like managing expectations. Totally, totally fair. Yeah, um, uh, I, I definitely agree. Uh, you had a point about bringing. Uh, you wanted to bring up maybe. Uh yeah, I just the news coverage with respect to. P tape and uh, yeah. uh, just in general on Fox, it's gotten so bad. Like I, you can't even. I can't even watch clips. I don't really watch TV ever. Yeah. But it just what people seem interested in is just deranged to me, right? Like I just mm-hmm. I, don't, I have no. I feel no attachment or I have no access point to what I guess like democracy looks like these days. Yeah. And I wish there were some news channel that was claimed to be nonpartisan, I guess, and I think it could be very well be nonpartisan, but just had like a pro democratic process, pro human rights, pro like facts bias, right? I don't know what that would look like. I, I think that's supposedly what PBS is supposed to be, right? Right. I think but it's just like Voice of America for America. Like I want some fucking CIA propaganda. Just like sit here. Like I want I want I want to tune into that channel and just hear about like how great democracy is. Well, if you're willing to outsource it, we could always have you know the Economist television <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I'm not. I'm not quite ready for King George to march back in. It'd be the voice for. Okay, the voice of America from the British. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that is for that, the BBC. That's like that, That's the day like liberal just like dies. Completely <laughs> dies. Um, but yeah, I'm not quite. I feel like there have to be enough like people in America that are just have some weird Stephen King, Star Trek like, you know, nascent patriotism in them, and just like want sense of like formality, decorum, and order, right? They well, want you, Dan Rather, and I Anderson Cooper, you know. Right. So, so what is the difference between Dan Rather and Anderson Cooper? I Walter Cronkite. I mean, just like a sense of. Uh, decorum yeah and... just like the the you're going for so I, th- I think that i think the problem is that when you t- when you think about it like i mean i think um the news services we have are are try to be middle of the road the problem is that news services themselves have gotten pretty shallow like i think it, there's a difference between swinging left like the difference between the left and right um and the difference between basic competence in news mm-hmm. service right so um, what happens, I think, is that because we don't, uh, because the quality has gone down, I think we've degenerated into sort of like partisan hackery. And I think there are plenty of, I mean, all the major studios or the major broadcast networks run a nightly news service. And they're, you know, I mean, I think they certainly are the inheritors of the Cronkite, uh, old school Dan Rather kind of way of looking at the world. They try to be neutral. They try to be central. And I think uh, they're just not as relevant anymore. Yeah. I mean, I... I... There's that. I, I think this is a this is a call for like a twenty four hour thing. I guess I just, what I think is I just kind of despise the way MSNBC tries to be like 
uh, overblown corrective to Fox News as opposed to like... Well, but then what do you think about CNN? It's just shitty? CNN, yeah. I mean, it's a little better just because it has this like... It was the first one, so it's trying to do like its own kind of original... But I mean, I, I, I feel like there's a there's a triangulatable market of left and right where people want to hear information. They want the process investigated. They believe in human rights... Yeah, I guess... And they, they like to see democracy function and support democracy. Right, and I think the thing is that a lot... On one hand, you have, um, you have like, a, a right-wing network like Fox, which is, it's like, it's gotten really weird under the Trump administration. Like, it's no longer has any claim to, like, being unbiased and, like, they're putting forth, like, weird conspiracy theories. And also, I mean, the equivalent is MSNBC, and I think... Uh, again, like it's easy to do shallow reporting and just rely on angry clips. Like it's a really effective media formula. And in the middle is the same media formula of like screeching clips and something that really pulls in the eyeballs. Um, so, event, so again, it's just the journalistic standards have dropped. Mm -hmm. um, and the center is, there is space in the center for interesting news to be reported. I just don't know if it's going to survive in the current yeah. media backdrop, right? So you'd have to you have to run a station or a news service that's very very cheap, because I don't think you're going to get the same kind of ratings, at least not in the beginning. Yeah, I think with low overhead, then you can grow your audience by like doing good work and yeah. you become like a referee, you know. Yeah. The same way that AP or Reuters built there, and then everybody's taking, you know, your analysts. Yeah. Because they're the only ones that are trusted anymore. Right. You know, in the same way that like a think tank works, but with like a journalistic focus. You know? Yeah. Ugly people, just the facts. That's why I like news network. <laughs> yeah, it could work. It could work. Yeah. All right. Uh, I don't know. Just it's something I long for. Okay. Like, I, I I long for a serious news service as well. Yeah. Um. Uh, anything else on the doubling down on defeat section? Uh, I I think that's it. Did you want to talk about the ACHA and uh, some oh, this sort of is a little bit rhetoric around that? Uh, no, I think it's, I think the, the, that point is passed. Like, yeah. I think it's, we just, talking about millions of di dying is like, million, last time I checked, like, Obamacare didn't repeal human mortality. Like, <laughs> plenty of people, plenty of people died with or without Obamacare. It's a silly point. It's inflamed rhetoric. And I think at this point, there's a lot going for the Democratic Party only because the Republican Party is struggling with itself so in such an existential way that like you don't need to you don't need the Warrens being your spokesperson right? yeah when you blow when you blow things up and make them overblown like the impeachment like the yeah. AHCA killing lots of millions of people and they don't happen overnight you you actually help the other side yeah you know? it's better to over to under promise on these things and yeah. over deliver you know? yeah I mean you can I mean, part of moving to the center, which we talk a lot about, yeah, yeah, yeah. is a is a matter of tone and rhetoric. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily giving up your ideals. Absolutely it's, not. Yeah. It's, it's, In fact, you can be more brutal if you can be moderate. Yeah, if you, especially if you're able to and willing to engage in a debate, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. really the point. So, uh, it's not about you don't even yeah. It's not about necessarily ceding ideological ground. It is about, however, understanding that you can engage in a debate that's reasonable and still be very much in the right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, I think that's it for this section, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's go on to our next section, which is Outside the Bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what have you, you been imbibing that is uh, out, out in the uh, conservative sphere? 
so there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, there's one quick, um, there's one quick recommendation. So uh, I'll bring her up, and I brought I brought her up, um, but it's particularly relevant to this podcast. Uh, Corey Shockey, who is a sort of a center right, uh, she used to be what was called the establishment Republican on the defense side. Uh, she wrote an essay on War in the Rocks, which is a pretty good uh, military blog. Uh, I recommend it for people who are interested in military affairs, check out War on the Rocks. But she wrote about McMaster in particular. And I talked a little bit about this. Uh, McMaster, we actually talked about his book where he talks about uh, the dereliction of duty, where he talks about the responsibility of military leaders um, during a time of war and how uh, and what their duty is to their um civilian masters right in terms of bringing truth and honesty to any sort of analysis uh cory shockey writes wrote an essay piece that was pretty critical of the book and in general mcmasters um, but she actually comes to his defense uh in this essay where she talks about mcmasters being trapped this uh, is a new essay about yeah, it. yeah yeah just a new essay i think it came out last week um and so uh so she talks a little bit about this and it's an interesting essay uh, you're digging a, you're digging into a lot of things, so maybe it's not for everyone, but it is an interesting debate about McMaster's, someone who was seen as having a lot of integrity and maybe may have lost a little bit of integrity trying to uh, defend some of the actions that Donald Trump made last week where he revealed important secrets to the Russians, which is terrible. Um, and so uh, it's an interesting essay, but I think it's also it digs pretty deep in terms of ethics and, and his responsibility as a military. Uh, guy. Um, the other thing that I think I would recommend uh, in general um, is uh, is following the right's real war within itself. So the right has a faction that were effectively they're called the Never Trumpers, um, and they were really appalled by uh, Donald Trump, and they were pretty critical of him um, throughout his campaign. And then there were sort of either establishment Republicans or Trump fans that um, effectively won that battle. Um, but over the past weeks, those divisions have come up, right? So, uh, and you can see real debates about, uh, there are people on the right who are really appalled by Donald Trump. Um, and so you, I think if you come from the left, you're like, oh, okay, we can talk to the never Trump people. But I think it's more important to talk about that debate because, uh, the never Trump people were put aside, right? And even on the right, they were buried. So it's still, uh, the, the pro Trump or the part of the establishment that became pro Trump still holds a lot of um, still holds a lot of sway. So uh, there are some, uh, but it's this debate between the two that I think is really interesting. So it's um, in general, as we kind of think about pulling in um, sources outside of our bubble, it's important to know that the Repu like there are people that are being referred to. Um, I met I mentioned Seth Mandel, but there's like John Pothurst. Um, I forget how to say his name. Um, there are some other people on the right. Pot, is that Potterettes? Potterettes, yeah. I, I yeah. have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he runs a pretty interesting uh, blog. Um, there are uh, uh, there are some other people as well. Every, Tom Nichols. Um, every every conservative uh, uh, columnist at the New York Times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so t yeah, so so uh, and I'd say Tom Nichols and John Potterettes uh, run particularly entertaining. Um, uh, Twitter site, so you can check them out. But keep in mind that they're never Trumpers, mm -hmm. and they always were. So they're pretty appalled by the guy. So uh, when I think one of the things that we've done in the past couple of weeks is like, oh, the Republicans are on our side. Uh, no, the part of the Republican Party that was always anti-Trump has been given like a little bit more encouragement to their voice. 
Yeah. So that's different. But it, uh, again, I would say Tom Nichols, John Potters are, are really interesting because they're still involved in that debate. Yeah, I mean, going back to the idea of like a bankrupt administration, right? Like in receivership, I think there's a war between the military side of things taking over and like the Bain Capital side of things no. taking over, right? Like, can we res? Are we just should we do we just keep this like going in name only in order <laughs> to just like get what we need done? Because it right. like doesn't matter because we're like you know. It is, it is a government, and we are the military. We need a government to be nominally in charge in order to rubber stamp our plans. Or do we want to renovate this thing inside and out, like a, like a yogurt company? And <laughs> what? Like, or, you know, like whatever being capital, like, and just, like, start restructure the thing completely, uh, gut it from the inside out, put new, have Trump fire everybody, do, right. like, a complete White House shakeup in order to get, like, all these to get actually talented Republicans in there. Right. This narrative of like, oh, who would work for Trump now, right? Like, yeah. everybody would work for. I mean, like, you know, like if if he's legitimately bankrupt and he can no longer decide who to hire for himself now, yeah, then you just like fire everyone. It's complete restructuring. He gets in like all the talented Republicans from the right who have been avoiding him yeah. thus far, and he, you know, slowly just fades away until like in 2020 I just, yeah i mean I, I, i'm not saying that's what's going to happen i'm just saying that that is a dream that that's a dream i think so yeah. uh, i think what you're saying like i mean there are like significant divisions even within the never trump yeah. and i think the military is more willing to hold their nose and yeah, go yeah. along with what they need or yeah. certain parts the maddest wing is willing to hold its nose and maybe play long but i think the like romney side of of the Republican Party, the Bain Capital side, I think uh, I don't know. I I think more as more and more people from the left read Republican sources, I think they're getting a skewed version of what the Republican side is because there are people who are just going to be loyal to Trump and they're going to continue to be a political issue. Yeah, I think the skew is that people think they're going to like go become like Democrats. Like this is it. They've had enough. Like they're yeah. ready to like you know believe in deficit spending and like yeah. i don't know uh, universal health care like yeah. that is never going to happen right. like they are not your friends as far as that goes but they they will be allies temporarily if it comes to getting their boys and girls in office as opposed to trump's yeah shitheads who are doing major damage to the republican brand yeah yeah i'll agree with that uh so did you want to bring up some stuff for uh yeah so i, I read a couple books uh that I found to be pretty great uh, just on a military theme here. Uh, one is a book short series called Redeployment by this guy Phil Clay, and it's uh, stories about the Iraq War. Yeah. Uh, I believe he was a Marine, mm -hmm. but it's uh, people from all branches of the military and you know who were called to serve and sort of their stories and mm -hmm. their effect afterward and stuff like that and what they saw. And there's a lot of interesting just it's great writing for one yeah. thing I, I really recommend it uh but one of the things that's kind of a, a theme is that the a lot of the soldiers involved were kind of for the war but they just didn't like how it was prosecuted especially in the aftermath yeah because iraq was turned into a free market paradise mm -hmm. you know in the city and so it was kind of like gutted and then all these companies were kind of sent in to like reconstructed but they were sent in to reconstruct it under like no oversight right so they just like spent all this money or you know like that they got from the government and it was just it became like 
we Iraq for a while became like Republican paradise, right? Yeah. Like, and the government, of course, fell apart, right? Like, it didn't work at all, right? Yeah. It was like, because it went from zero to, you know, of like, yeah. Ayn Rand was paradise and yeah. overnight, right? In the middle of, like, massive insurgency and just, like, instability yeah. and with military control. I think it's really interesting for that reason to read, you know, about this, like, society getting, like, objectivism imposed on it from, <laughs> from above. Right. Uh, and the way that uh, this, you know formerly Fabian country responded to that. Yeah. The Bathurst Party is a Fabian yeah, uh, it's a, socialist it's of, yeah, party. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's sort of like what they had in play for, and still is in play in Syria, right? right? Uh, and it's interesting for that reason yeah. that I recommend it. Uh, uh, the, other, the other book I recommend is this book called Wizards of Armageddon by Fred Kaplan, which is about, uh, it's essentially just about the Rand Corporation, Yeah, which I, was something I, you know, I've always heard my whole life, but yeah. I'd never really gone into or thought about. Or yeah. Fake wondered, you know, how it came to be and sure. what its actual role was in crafting uh, defense policy during the Cold War. And it turns out it's just immense, like crafted most of our defense policy during yeah. the Cold War, uh, just because like it had a continuity to it where the administration's ping-ponging back and forth did it, right? Right. Uh, and uh, we also attracted all these people to it. And the RAND Corporation stands for R&D, right? And it is a, yeah. uh, it is a, a, a civilian... Uh, corporation that handles classified data in order to make things an original charter for the Air Force, but now for really yeah. any element of the military. Right. Uh, uh, it goes beyond that, too. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there's a famous, uh, there are a lot of really famous studies that the, the RAND Corporation has done. Yes, yeah, so they were big in uh, kind of inventing whole cloth, like some disciplines like systems analysis and they were big in operations research, operations research, yeah. uh, and uh, using quantitative analysis to do these things. To, yeah, I mean to solve social problems. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and uh, which is good for small applications uh, in military technology, but not always so good for uh, massive defense policy with respect to. Uh, kind of weapon that no one knows how yeah. it's going to work. Or what it's gonna yeah, work. and they did, I mean, and what you're talking about is, uh, in particular, um, nuclear. Sure, nuclear, yes. Exactly. Yeah, so nuclear yeah. planning. So, like, they were really, uh, they, they were really close to a lot, a lot of the strategy that came around nuclear armament or disarmament. Yeah, so their they're central kind of, I guess, like, uh, insight. It's a really fascinating book. Yeah. It was applying game theory to yeah. nuclear war. Uh the idea that the Soviets will operate rationally in their best interest, and then if their move will defeat us, they will make that move. So we have right. to make sure they're never able to make to get to that point where. Hence the idea of deterrence, yeah. right? And you know, massive retaliation, yeah. uh, which are two concepts that were kind of later proved not to really work. Yeah, to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, where it kind of came to pass that the Soviets were kind of fucking playing us like by making us spend all this money on military technology that we didn't necessarily really need to uh by faking their amount of money they were spending on right 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 so they there, <coughs> there was some sense that they were using up a Potemkin, Potemkin yeah, like yeah, yeah. uh uh science department right yeah, yeah. yeah luckily america was making the economy was so much better than the soviet union's economy that didn't matter at all like so uh, this yeah. is it's not outside the bubble but it's actually i read a book or i listened to it actually on audible and was um uh it's called uh, the imagineers of war it's about darpa 
Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and so yeah. there's it's a it's sort of a parallel story because DARPA is the research agency for the Defense Department, uh, and they talk a lot about that that interplay too. So uh, it may be an interesting companion piece to read. Yeah, it's great if you're interested in how analysis is done at that level and yeah. you know the kinds of people that do it. It's an interesting book. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's definitely something I was unfamiliar with, and the internecine wars between the service branches and how they use data in order to get money for their budgets is interesting yeah yeah me. um imagineers of war talk a lot about that too yeah. like the bureaucracy and trying to like follow political trends and also try to keep above them and you know and political trends dictated by war it's really really interesting and so much of that is about leaks right like if you yeah. want you you leak stuff to the new york times and it's like good it might be it might be alarming now but it's got a long-term focus yeah. of making you afraid of this one thing that yeah. they can that they're the only ones that can spend money on right like, so NSA, you're doing great work. <laughs> Whoever's uh, in your, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's it for yeah. uh, Outside the Bubble. Do you want to talk a little bit about random shit? Yeah, let's do random shit. So did you want to do music or something else? What else is there? Twin Peaks started up. I don't know if you're a Twin I, Peaks fan. No, I wasn't a Twin Peaks fan. Uh, I'm happy to talk about music. Yeah, music, sure. So this, again, I guess we talked take on big topics <laughs> yeah. and I was thinking about uh, music recently but I have never talked to you about music and so uh, uh, we're both from the south so yeah, we're both yeah. in, uh, different lands but musical traditions but we've never really had a sat down and had a conversation so uh, about music so I guess do you listen to music do you like do music I, do you like music <laughs> what kind of music do you like I don't know uh, yeah I listen to music all the time I listen to it while I write while I do other things so yeah. Do you have particular genres or? Uh... I'm pretty eclectic. Like I'll just try to listen to whatever. I don't really like too much, you know. Uh, but I'm always give shit a shot. You know? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm. I like. Uh, you know. I, I guess I grew up on grunge. Yeah. You know, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails. I guess more industrial. But yeah. Nirvana. Yeah. Uh, were big parts of my teenage life. Yeah. Uh, I was a huge Beck fan. I, I still am. Okay. Uh, I, you know, uh, I liked, I loved punk and uh, blues. Yeah. Uh, I guess if there's, you know, two kinds of people in the world, blues and jazz people, mm -hmm. I would fall down in the blues version. Like a good, I like a good simple chord progression, as opposed to like exploration of music as yeah. like a you know mathematical like mm -hmm. form. Uh, I, I like something like <laughs> from the gut, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, how about I, I'm not a huge country and western fan, but I like Willie Nelson and some of the sure. outlaw country people. Yeah. Um, so I guess this is, I, I think about music in my own musical history too. Uh, so I grew up in North Carolina. We talked a little bit about this. So I grew up in a, um, a time in an era where uh, there's a lot of like, there are a lot of indie bands uh, coming out. Uh, there's some big names back then, so Super Chunk. Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh, South Carolina. Oh, okay. Wrong Sorry. state. I think I made, made that, 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 that mistake before. Uh, I apologize for that. <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, so, and I think we got like one or two top 40 hits. Like there was a band called Squirrel Nut Zippers. Oh, shit. Yeah, 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 yeah that's great. From, they're all from Chapel Hill. Yeah, I had that album when I was Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then like, uh, uh, and like all my friends in high school were in bands and indie rock bands and like, uh, so I, I grew up in this uh, era of Ben uh, Folds, North Carolina. Or yes, South Carolina. also okay. yeah, yeah, Ben Folds also uh, also North Carolinian. Um, so uh, and so I grew up in this tradition, and it was like such a 
it was such an identity thing that I clinged to that like, oh, okay, I'm an indie rocker in high school. And so I, I, I think about that. And it, it was weird because it was just one of those identities I adopted re, um, uh, for a number of reasons, but largely it allowed me to hang out with like, like nerds like myself and listen to kind of cool music and have a, and we could do stuff because we could go to clubs at, uh, like uh, in, in, around the campuses and we could and some of them were DJs so it was like a really important part of my like high school upbringing but I have to be honest like I don't know if I really like I mean the music is important to me but I don't think I have great taste in music and I think it was just more like it was just more of like my teenage uh, life like I, I if you had if you had thrown the same group of people and the same kind of good like, like the social scene I felt comfortable with I could have been listening to jazz I don't know <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so, yeah I don't know like I feel like my taste is completely arbitrary and socially defined and so like part of it was like oh we're like the Chapel Hill music scene girl we hate Seattle like we hate that grunge scene like um, we're you know legit whatever anyway um, but a lot of it was like what teenagers do is you know you define yourself by you know who you aren't um that's true. Uh, uh, and uh, but it was also really important. Like it, it gave me a social group, and it, it gave me a, a, an important way to define myself and what I, how I was willing to like interact with my peers or not interact with my peers. Um, the interesting thing is, though, like um, though I'm Indian, I never was really into Indian music or even even pop in, like Hindi pop or anything like that. So that's something that never sank in. So like uh, at some point, I chose like a particularly white form of music like if you go to like an indie rock show i'm like i am the only fucking minority in this room still like still like or i'm like i'm like at 40 i'm like uh, it just never became non-white um music isn't really big in new york i don't think a lot of people know that but like the music scene here kind of doesn't exist right like it doesn't a college town or like a commensurately big town in another state it's still i'm really i really like music like i can it's it, like as opposed to my wife who just doesn't care about it that much like I'm still like emotionally moved by music um, yeah, that's all that matters right? yeah. that's what taste is just, yeah. like, does this like affect is there any kind of music that you like that you're particularly embarrassed about oh no no I actually the one thing that I think that I, I grew up with was like I would refuse to be embarrassed yeah, by my yeah, pop yeah, culture yeah, taste yeah. Um, I will say like um, uh, yeah I mean I think Taylor Swift has put out a couple of really good albums I'm not really ashamed of that I mean maybe I should be but yeah she's got a good producer it's fine music I'm pretty okay with like Taylor Swift I'm not sure if I'm gonna buy her album but like go to a show or anything but like yeah it's a good song it's a great song shake it off man. shake it off that is you know yeah yeah and she, she puts together good music yeah no question I was like I, I, I'm like I'm kind of embarrassed about how big of a Rob Zombie slash White Zombie fan I am oh really yeah, I'm a huge Rob Zombie fan even now, is he still putting out music, or is he, or are you just watching out great music? <laughs> or are you just watching like his movies his and no, soundtrack? No, no, no. You know, and <laughs> the soundtrack. Um, no. I'll say that there was a guy um, I grew up uh, listening to. He was in a band called Archers of Loaf. Oh, uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, they, but the uh, lead guy Eric Bachman continues to produce, produce music, and I think it's some of the best. Like, I, I think he's great. Like, and yeah. I think his sound is really matured, where he is like a sort of a bratty indie rocker like now his stuff like his latest album i thought was really good and like there are a couple of albums he released maybe even 10 years ago like you know 12 years after his band uh broke up i thought were really really good so like 
Eric Bachman or Crooked Fingers or whatever. This was Crooked Fingers? Yeah, so I think yeah. he was Archers of Loath and Crooked Fingers, and now he's back to just Eric Bachman. But, yeah, I mean, he puts out really good stuff, and it's interesting. Like, I like the idea that he's kind of, his sound has grown up as we both have aged, so, <laughs> yeah. Where do you think, where do you think it's going to, the industry is going to go, like, as a whole? Like, do you think it's got to, it's got to, has it, cha- you know, it's certainly changed. Like, right. Become a lot. I, I, maybe it was just like kids are always into mu- music, but it seemed like it had a way bigger role in people's lives when I, I was younger, and it seems to have kind of faded. Right, like I mean, it's like software and cooking have become well. There's no rock stars. Yeah, there's no local music scene, which was like yeah. formative in my yeah, life, yeah. right? So like, I mean, you don't have like, um, you're not like, okay, well, I'm from this area. Like, I mean, it's you know, you can if you. You, and I, I wonder how a scene really works now, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, there was, like, sort of a Brooklyn music scene where there were some really great albums coming out of, like, Brooklyn, like, uh, Sif John Stevens, and then, like... Grizzly uh, Bears. Huh? Or the Grizzly Bears Brooklyn band. I think so. Like, yeah. but, um, uh, like, uh, TV on the radio was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were, they were based in Brooklyn. They were, yeah. like... So it was really kind of, like, hot bands that were... And, I, I mean, even MIA, I think, was living in... Bed Stuy. No, she, I she was there. I thought she was in London, but she was. Yeah, yeah I think she, she moved to Bed Stuy yeah, at yeah. some point. Um, uh, so, like, there were a bunch of Brooklyn bands, but there was never, like, a Brooklyn sound, right? Yeah. Yeah, which I think is interesting. Like, um, I, I, I think it's hard for musicians to get paid, right? Like, yeah. Uh, um, so, I don't know what, I don't know how that, how that is sustainable. Right? Like, there's no album deal they can make. I don't know what the studio, why anyone will buy studio time like all of these things that made all the record companies kind of justify taking a cut or it's no longer there right that's true so i don't know what but at the same time the record companies are the ones that would invest in like serious sounds and And exploit the crap out of them in like an exciting way yeah exactly like i mean you know it's a question of like who's more important the performer or the producer and like We'll say what you will. Yeah. There's some amazing producers out there. <laughs> All right, I think that's music. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that brings us to the end of another successful episode of Room of Requirement. Yeah. I hope we've solved everything for you. Yeah, absolutely. Put it into all your confusion that you've been having <laughs> in the past couple weeks. Yes. <laughs> Anything that was complex, we took on yeah. and came up with this easy solution. And as as uh, you know, talking about it is the first step to doing nothing. nothing. <laughs> Um, thanks again for joining us uh, again this has been episode 16 of Room of Requirement thanks to Kevin Carter for producing our outro music yeah and thanks to all of you for listening